running against the Vista Racing Shame Series. I want to tell you a story, um, a story that's really stuck with me. It's been 15 years. Uh, it was a story told by a person, and I cannot for the life of him remember their name. Um, I hung out with them. It was my wife's brother-in-law's brother's friend. So I hung out with him one night, and, and uh, I remember what he did. He was a student pastor at Princeton University. And he told this story that stuck with me. And what he told me, he said, um, he said, yeah, there was this one time a woman came into our church, uh, and she was uh, making the crack. And she came in, and she said, I need help. And they were like, of course. And so they start talking to her, and they start uh, helping her find services, and like getting her uh, to a place where she could be safe and, and, and get clean. And she says to the student pastor, she says to him, she goes, um, will God still love me if I end up smoking crack again? And the student pastor goes, yeah, absolutely. God will still love you if you end up smoking crack again. And she goes, well, then I, then I don't want to know that God. And the student pastor was like, really taken aback by this. And he was like, why? And she said, because... I need a God who's going to be really angry with me if I do this again. Otherwise, I'm just going to keep smoking. I just thought that was, I like Ford, right? And the more I think about it, the more that I think about us as a church, the more I think about me, I think about this woman, and I think we can all identify with her more so than maybe we believe. Right? Because what I think we do a lot of the time is we think of our God that way. Will my God love me if I do this? Will my God love me even though I'm not supposed to do this, right? And I've talked about this before. How many people have heard me talk about this vertical Christianity? I've chatted about it a few times, a couple of you. Um, and with this vertical Christianity, I think that's what we do with our God. We say, here we are on earth, and I want to do some things that are going to get me to heaven, and I don't want to go to hell. I was down here. And so I'm going to ask my God permission to do some things. God, can I do this? Can I drink this? Can I be with this person? Can I do this thing and still get to heaven? And if God says no, well, oh my gosh, uh, God, are you going to be angry with me? Are you going to be upset if I go against your permission and do these other things that are going to send me to hell? And so we have this idea that God is nothing more than a cosmic parent, okay? He's doling out permissions, or she's doling out uh, non-permissions, and the next thing we know, we're like, oh no, I'm in danger of going to hell, or oh, I'm going to go to heaven because I'm following the cosmic parent, right? That's what we think. And then our Bible becomes nothing more than a cosmic rule book. We search our Bibles and we're like, okay, does the Bible give me permission to do the things I want to do? And where does the Bible take away permission so I can stay away from that? And if I follow all that, then heaven should be my That is a skin-deep Christianity. That is a surface-level Christianity. That Christianity is not real. It certainly doesn't honor the infinite and unimaginable God that we have. Right? And I think this surface Christianity, this vertical Christianity, this asking for permission um, shows up more so for Christians than any other time when it comes to talk around sex, or sexual intimacy, or sexual desire. I think that is true. Do I have permission? Just substitute what this addicted woman said. Will God still love me if I have sex before marriage? Will God still love me if I've had sex with multiple people? Will God still love me if my marriage is struggling in the way that I've committed to this other person? I don't know. Think about it. Whatever it might be, we say, will God love me if... And does God give me permission to do this, right? And then if we've been sexually active and we've grown up in such a way where maybe our God didn't give us permission to do something, what do we have? We end up having a ton of shame. Right? There's a lot of shame around it. Oh, I've endangered myself and I might go to hell because I broke the... God didn't give me permission to do this and I did it anyway. I said last week, and it still matters, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that Christ comes here to eradicate our shame and embraces physical intimacy every single time. That is really, really good news. And so from that good news, we want to develop a new sexual ethic. We want to develop a sexual ethic that honors that good news, that honors God, that allows us to be the light as Christians. 
And here is what I'm going to do. Today, I'm going to disappoint you. Good? Okay. <laughs> For two reasons. Number one, because this is part one of the part two series. You're not going to get anything you want today. <laughs> Secondly, uh, I'm going to disappoint you because I am not going to give you permission. Nor am I going to take away permission. I'm not here for that. I'm not a conduit of the cosmic parent to tell you that you can or cannot do something when it comes to sex or intimacy or desire or whatever else. I'm not going to play that role. What I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you to take the way that you follow Jesus Christ seriously. I'm going to ask you to think, to pray, to listen to the Spirit and what you need to do in order to be a part of what God is trying to accomplish here on this earth. Now, what is God trying to accomplish here on this earth? I talked about this before. God loves us so much that God says, my kingdom come, my will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? And so God loves us so much that God says, you are going to bring the peace that I intend to the earth. It's a good thing. And then I said, sin, how many people are sinners? All of you raise your hand. Good, good. Uh, and sin is any time we get in the way of what God intends. Any time we get in the way of the peace that God intends. And so I'm not going to give those permissions today, and I'm not going to take permission today. Instead, I'm going to ask you this question. When it comes to sexual desire, sexual intimacy, everything in between, is the way we go about that, does it contribute to what God intends for God's kingdom here on earth? Or does it get in the way of what God intends for God's kingdom here on earth? That's the question we're going to ask ourselves today. Now, the way I'm going to set this up is by first off thinking about what God's design for sex might look like. And uh, this is what God's design for sex looks like. We're going to actually go back to the book of Exodus. We're going to get into the Midrash a little bit. Does anybody know what the Midrash is? It's like Jewish commentary, a little bit of Jewish commentary. We're going to do that too. And, and I want to talk about the way God um, sort of gives us sex, okay? Uh, and I'm going to start by talking about the Israelites. Israelites were slaves. And then they were freed from slavery by the Egyptians. Have we heard the story of the Red Sea party and all of that? That's where we're going, okay? So now they're free. And God says, if you want to be free, there are a few things that I think you should do if you want to be free. And one of the things God says, he says, if you're going to have your full humanity, if you're going to be free, one of the things I want you to do is just honor me. I want you to worship me. And I'm going to build, I want you to build a temple, and that's where I'm going to live. It's going to be a holy place. And so uh, they build this temple, and it's great, it's this tabernacle, it's beautiful, but people aren't uh, making it as holy as it needs to be. And so two of Moses' nephews try to go into this temple where God is, and they're both consumed by fire. Thanks be to God. But you all knew that because you all read Leviticus 10, right? Let me finish on Leviticus 10. It says this, Then the Lord spoke, and he said, Among those who approach me, I will be proved holy in the sight of all the people. I will be honored. And so what God is saying is, this is going to be the place where you meet me. This is the place where, where your uh, humanity is completely and utterly affirmed. This is the place where you give me your absolute best. And so what happens is, Moses tells all the people, Moses says, all right, everybody, contribute the best of what you have to building a temple that will be the ultimate honor to God. So I'm going to read to you what happens. The men accompanied the women, and those who wanted to make a donation brought bracelets, earrings, finger rings, body ornaments, all made of gold. Every skilled woman put her hand to spinning, and they all brought the spun yarn of sky blue wool, dark red wool, crimson wool, fine linen, and highly skilled women volunteers also spun goat's wool. Every man and woman among the Israelites who felt the urge to give something for all the work that God had ordered through Moses brought a donation for God. All right, everybody following? Good. Now we have this other verse. This verse goes like this. They made the bronze basin and the bronze stand from the mirrors of the woman who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. That sounds like a power-packed verse, doesn't it? 
No, it doesn't. It doesn't. But it is a power pack verse. I'm going to tell you why. Who were the women at the tent of meeting? And what were these mirrors all about? Women at the tent of meeting have a really interesting job. Because when Israel was still enslaved, the Egyptians made the Israelites sleep where they worked. They had to sleep where they worked. Now, why would you make someone sleep where they work? The reason that you're making somebody sleep where they work is so you can take away their humanity. Because if you have to sleep where you work, then you're not made to be intimate with anybody else. You're not made to be interpersonal with anybody else. You're not made to converse. You're not made to have a home. You're not made to have any kind of way of living. The only thing you are made to do is work. So the Egyptians purposely made people sleep where they worked so that their humanity would be taken from them. They were only made to work. So what would happen? These women at the tent of meeting would take these mirrors. They would use these mirrors and they would dress up. And they would use these mirrors... Uh, and they would go out to where the men were. Now, sometimes they were going out to their husbands, other times that wasn't the case, but they were going out to where these men were. And what they were doing is they were saying to the men, look in this mirror. Look in the mirror. You are a human being. You're still human. And then I love what the Midrash says. The Midrash says, then the woman would say, look at me. I'm better looking than you are. <laughs> it's, it's good stuff. And then, and then what would happen is they would go ahead and they would have sex. They would So, these women, from the tent of meeting, this was their job when they, when the Israelite was enslaved. Their job, let's, pay, let's, let's rewind, their job was to go and restore the humanity of people whose humanity was being taken. So their job was to go and through pleasure, through intimacy, intimacy say, you are free. And through pleasure and intimacy say, you are good. And through pleasure and through intimacy say, you are God's uh, chosen. You are made in the image of God. So through pleasure and through intimacy, they were reaffirmed as human beings when everybody else told them that they were subhuman. Do we see that? Do we get that? So the women bring the mirrors. They say, great, this is going to be the holiest of holy places, and I want these mirrors to be a part of it. And at first, Moses is like, nah, don't do it. In fact, I'm going to read from the Midrash on this, okay? Uh, they made the contribution towards the Mishkin, but Moses rejected them because they were made for temptation, i.e. to inspire lustful thoughts. The Holy One, blessed is he, said to them, Accept them, for these are more precious to me than anything, because through them women set up many legions. When their husbands were weary from back-breaking labor, the women would go and bring them food and drink and give them to eat. Then the woman would take the mirrors, and each one would see herself with her husband in the mirror, and she would seduce him with the word saying, I'm more beautiful than you. That's quite the way to seduce somebody. <laughs> and then in this way they arouse their husband's desire to be intimate with him. Okay, so we see briefly for a second that Moses goes, no, this, these mirrors, they inspired lustful thoughts, right? They inspired something that should have inspired. And God comes out and God says, no, no, no. These are more meaningful to me than anything else. And because procreation happened and, you know, you want to keep a, a nation flourishing, Right? But also because they restored humanity in my creation. They restored humanity in my people. Sex, intimacy, that desire is a part of who I am. It's part of what makes you free. It's part of what makes you a human being. There is where God stands on the issue of sex or, or, or intimacy or whatever else we're in between. Good? We are going to jump all over the place. So I need you to follow me for a minute, okay? Because now we're going to leave Exodus and we're going to go all the way to 1 Corinthians, all right? Let's go to 1 Corinthians, and then we're going to read uh, a passage that was read to me over and over and over again by the Apostle Paul. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 1-9. He says, Now for the matters you wrote about, 
It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her body, but yields it to her husband. The same way the husband does not have authority over his body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent, for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Because that's what we do when we're not having sex, we pray. <laughs> then, <laughs> then come together again, so Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that you were all, I wish that all of you were as I am, which was celibate. But each of you has your own gift from God. Now to the unmarried and the widows I say it's good for you to stay unmarried as I do, but if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Whew, that's a lot. How many people have heard this passage before? Okay, lots of us, yeah. And so with this kind of passage, it, it's super interesting for a variety of reasons. Um, but when we read scripture, we read it inherently, but, uh, I talked about this last week, when we read scripture as literal fact on a page, we're going to run into issues with it, okay? And this is one of those cases where we're going to run into issues, because right at the beginning, Paul says, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And then at the end, he says, I wish all you were as I am, which is celibate, right? So if we're to take this literally right now, then we all just need to be celibate and move on with our lives. I don't know. <laughs> and yet we don't do that. That's okay. Maybe some of us do that. That's a good thing. Uh, in fact, uh, the Catholic Church, this is one of the reasons that their priests are celibate in this passage. Okay? Now, here's some interesting things about the passage otherwise. First of all, I'm going to say something that might be shocking, okay? but almost every single scholar, theologian, the people that I've read and studied all say the same thing. Paul is dead wrong here. Yes, people in the Bible, they can be wrong. It's okay. It shows that God is still using people even in the midst of their wrongness. Right? Okay, so that can happen. That's okay. But what is, why is Paul wrong? What's, what's going on? Well, Paul legitimately believes that Jesus Christ is coming back in like a few days. Like, I'm not even kidding. Like, it's going to be soon. It's going to be in weeks. And so why would you want to have sex and have relationships and complicate all that when Jesus is coming back? It's going to get in the way of everything. Right? That's, that's number one. That's the first thing that Paul is saying. Now, Paul says, but if you are burning with desire, I don't want you to be sexually immoral. I want you to get married. Now, why is Paul saying that? Uh, my, uh, he was not my Bible professor, but he's a Bible professor at this, my alma mater. His name is Pete Ennis, and this is what Pete Ennis says about Paul. He says, Paul's thinking is generally this. Those Gentiles will have sex with anything. <laughs> <laughs> so, what is Pete Ennis saying here? What's Paul saying here for that matter? Paul's talking to a group of people who are brand new Christ followers. And as Gentiles, they did have sex with anything. In fact, I've talked about it here at this church before. It was a common practice. It was common practice for patrons to have uh, boys and girls on the side, right? And it was common practice for them to say that they were apprentices, but then they were also having sex with them. And then you have these fertility rituals where you're literally having anonymous sex with everybody, okay? And Paul's speaking very much to this. He's saying, listen, you don't want to be sexually immoral this way. And so now, let's think where, where, where Paul's coming from. Paul is coming from what God was talking about in Exodus. Paul's coming from that place. He's going, you know what? In Exodus, God set, sets up sex as something that restores humanity, as something that brings freedom, as something that brings security, as something that tells you you are loved. And the way the Gentiles are having sex is a way that uses power over somebody else. It's a way that treats somebody else as a commodity. It's a way that treats somebody else as a way for your own uh, our own instant gratification. It's a selfish 
way of using another. Do we see what's happening here? What I think is interesting is Jesus says the same thing. In fact, I'm a yes. Paul probably gets it from Jesus. Here's what Jesus says. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. Now what is Jesus talking about? What's Paul talking about? I'm not going to ask us to raise our hands on this one. Don't do it. <laughs> but I think if we're broken people, and if we're being honest as broken people, and there have been times that we have looked at somebody else and we have said, that person is not human, that person is for my consumption. How many times have we seen somebody maybe walking down the street and we say the words, look at that. We don't say, look at her, look at him, look at that. Even in our own words. What are we doing in our own words, right off the bat, just by saying that one thing? Taking away humanity. I want to get with that. Right? What we're doing is we're no longer affirming the humanity that God intends. Now what we're doing is we're saying that person is an object for my own desire and my own consumption. That is what we are doing. And what Jesus is saying is Jesus is saying it is better for you. You know, we're not committing adultery by looking at that person. But what Jesus is saying is right there, you just took that person's humanity away. You just took it from him. Better cut off your hand. Which, by the way, good thing we don't read the Bible literally, right? We'd all be walking around without hands. Um, <laughs> But this is what Jesus is saying. He's like, better to go to hell. And I love it. When we say what the hell to somebody, like, what the hell? What are we saying? Like, there was no reason for that. Or why would you do that? That doesn't make sense to me. And that's sort of what Jesus is saying here. He's saying there's something really hellish. Every time we take away the humanity of someone else, there's no rhyme or reason to it. It doesn't make sense. And so what Paul is doing is he's following Jesus. And Jesus is following God from Moses, right? And, and what Paul is doing is he's not giving us a statement for all time. He's not saying, oh, I hope the people in 2018 look at this and know not to have sex before they're married. What Paul is saying is he's saying, I want everybody who is a follower of Christ to ask themselves the really difficult question as to whether or not the way that I am intimate with somebody else brings peace to what God wants or takes away from what God wants. Brings affirmation to somebody's humanity or takes away the affirmation of somebody's humanity. Brings freedom to somebody or takes away that freedom. We see what Paul is doing here. You see, this is far deeper. Now, in Paul's time, in Paul's time, that happened through marriage. That was the only way Paul knew that to happen. In Paul's time, you know, Paul didn't know about monogamous same-sex relationships either in his time, right? So he's speaking to two people 2,000 years ago in a way that he knows. And so for us, we can ask ourselves the question, well, is the Bible still alive? Is the Bible still living? And if the Bible is alive and it's still living, then we ask ourselves the same questions Paul asking, as Paul is asking within our context. And so let's ask that question. For all of us, whether we're married, unmarried, in committed relationships, not in committed relationships, is the way we think about desire, is the way we think about our physical intimacy, the way we think about pleasure. Is that affirming in the way that even Paul's talking about? Because Paul's talking about, you know, husbands yield to your wives, wives yield to your husbands, right? That's selfless. That affirms. That's a good thing. It's making another feel secure. It's making another recognize that they're part of the image of God. Oh, is that the way we think about desire? If it is, then I believe we're a part of the new humanity. What's the new humanity? The Gentiles, same people that Paul's talking to. They say, hey, are we still Greeks? Are we still Romans? What, what are we right now? And Paul goes, you do things a little differently. And because you do, you are the new humanity. 
That's what we have the opportunity to become. The new humanity. And so I go back to the addicted woman who says, is God going to love me? Who's looking for permission. And again, I'm not here to give permission. I'm not here to take permission. I don't think that's what God's doing either. I think what's happening is that God is saying, if you are going to restore my kingdom, then do it through affirmation of others, freedom for others, consent, right, for others. Do it in a way that brings security. <laughs> Bring it in a way that brings a bond of love, the same bond that God shows to us by giving us Jesus Christ. That's what we're asked to do, and that's what we're called to do. Anything else gets in the way of what God's trying to accomplish. I think as a church, let's do the hard work. We're not going to ask permission, but we are going to work to be a part of the new humanity. Amen? Amen? Oh, God. This one's tough. God, you ask a lot of us. So we pray for the curse to be up to the task to look at each individual and to look at intimacy, physical, social, emotional, and other, and to say, am I bringing the affirmation that you desire for that person? God, when we're not, when we fall, when we mess this up, we thank, we thank you for your grace. The grace that comes from the good news of Jesus Christ and his life and death and resurrection. God, we ask your spirit to walk with us as we continue to discern what this means in our lives. Praise in your name. Amen.